King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind 
and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of this house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler of the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed. Okay. Well, that's a story. And it's a wonderful story, and you've heard it, I'm sure, many times, but let's try to look at it with fresh eyes. We're doing this just before we jump back into 2 Samuel next week and finish that up before we move into Revelation after that. And um, let's begin with a story. I like to start with stories. In 1873, Catherine the Great, Empress of Russia, had annexed, meaning she took over part of the... um, uh, Ottoman Empire, sorry, it's a Crimean region, it's a spot south of the Ukraine. You can take that off the screen and just leave up my other one. Uh, the Grimm's brothers are coming up later. Um, so she realized right away she needed a governor for this Crimean region, so she puts a guy named Gregory Potemkin in power over the region. And she, Gregory Potemkin, and all the world knew that war with the Ottoman Empire, the Turks, was going to come. It was just a matter of time. But she also knew that she needed allies. Russia, despite its massive size, she wasn't sure if it was ready to fight the Ottoman Empire. So she decides to get her allies on a ship. And they start sailing down the Dnieper River, which is on the south part of Ukraine, present-day Ukraine, at that time it was the Russian Empire. And she decides she's going to take her delegates on a tour. She's going to show off the wealth and the preparations that her country has for war. And the problem, of course, was she wasn't ready for war. So she wasn't sure what she was going to show them. So Gregory Potemkin comes up with this ingenious plan. He decides, don't worry, Catherine, you do your part. You wine and dine the delegates. You sail them down the river. I will take care of what they see. And so he sets about creating fake cities. So he sets up these facades. Look, something like this. They look like houses on the outside, but there's sticks holding them up in the back, kind of like you'd see on the stage. And he sets them up in these towns on these harbors. And he hires soldiers and and peasants to come and pretend like they're working. So that when they stop, she then parades out her delegates. They don't go on to the... Good God forbid, they wouldn't go to the city. They would just observe it from the river. 
And then from there, it would look like these cities were thriving. And once they were content, she would bring them back in to wine and dine them. They'd sail away. Potemkin would tear down the city, move it to the next stop, and set it up again. And he did this for days and days and days, fooling the delegates. A few years later, they went to war and they defeated the Turks. Now, the reason I bring this up is because this entire story about Belshazzar in Daniel 5 is about the creation of what this is. It's called a Potemkin village. They do it today still. And a Potemkin village is what happens when you try to set something up that you create to hide something that's undesirable, right? Politicians do it all the time. You create some sort of a facade, something that will hide the truth, you know? Like when you ask a child to clean their room and they just throw everything under the bed. That's what, this is what it is. It's a facade. And all you're seeing in Daniel 5 is Belshazzar creating Potemkin village after village after village, and we're going to show that. And he does it because of pride. This is a great case study, this story, of pride. And not only just pride, but how pride is used by us, what it makes us do, but then also how God deals with it. And so this is going to be very unique in the world of Redeemer in my time here because it's a four-point sermon. Four, not three, four. It's a new year. So (laughs) we are going to see that pride requires an audience, a rival, a lie, and a remedy, okay? An audience, a rival, a lie, and a remedy. So let's move into an audience. So let's set some context here because not many people spend their time studying ancient Near Eastern history. So what's going on at this point in the history of the world? So it's, the year is roughly in the 550s. Well, actually, this is happening 539 BC. But here's what you need to know. Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon at one point. He dies in 562 BC. But after Nebuchadnezzar, there is a power vacuum because everybody is trying to become king, but nobody can hold the throne long enough. So over six years, there's five different kings in Babylon. Until finally, a man named Nabonidus, who is not even royal in blood, he's a usurper, comes and he takes the throne and he finally brings a little stability. 17 years he rules. But he doesn't like to be king. He realizes very early he hates ruling. So he makes his son, Belshazzar, the real ruler, and he just goes on and lives out in the country and enjoys the luxuries of being king, but does nothing to be king, if you know what I mean. So... This is why, by the way, they're, they're co-regents. History records this very well. They, he makes two kings. This is why Bel- Belshazzar says if Daniel can interpret this, this, these, this writing, he'll be the third ruler. Can't be the second because there's already two. So Belshazzar is this political, supposed to be the political guy running the country, but he proves to be really bad at it. And what we're seeing now, this moment, you're actually, this story takes place on the last day of the Babylonian Empire. At this point, Babylon falls after this, and when it falls, the Persian Empire rises. So you're witnessing the end of the Babylonian Empire. It's quite fascinating, because while this is happening, outside of the city of Babylon, Cyrus the Great of Persia had been rising. You see, if you know anything about the history of the time, there's always somebody waiting to take the throne. And while the Assyrians were powerful, the Babylonians were growing in power and eventually took over. But while the Babylonians were in power, the Persians were rising, and there's this Game of Thrones happening. And at this moment, while this party is raging, Cyrus the Great, according to Herodotus, this Greek historian, he had surrounded Babylon for two years and was besieging it. 
So in the middle of a siege, why is Belshazzar throwing a party for a thousand people? It's the question we have to ask. But it's actually not a, a bad reason, even though it's unwise. See, Belshazzar understood that in the ancient world, because there's always a mark on your back as a king, somebody's just waiting to take the throne, you have to show strength. You know, now it's a democracy, you're bombastic, you can be loud and you can irritate people, but you're not generally worried about being assassinated and a coup happening in the middle of the night. But in the ancient times it was. This is why ancient kings would create myths about themselves and say things like, I am the son of a god, because they wanted to make sure that you thought twice before you stuck a knife at him. So Belshazzar knows he is only as strong and secure as people think he is. So what better to do when everybody is saying, boy, we're in trouble here. Babylon could be falling. What better to do when you're feeling insecure than to throw a party and say, if, if we were in trouble, do you think I'd throw a party? See, it's a great tactic. It's a Potemkin village. I'll throw this great party for my thousand closest friends and all the people whose opinion I need. Because remember, pride needs an audience. I don't want to admit to you or to anyone else that Babylon is falling on my watch. So let's have a party. Let me show you that things are okay. And not just okay, but he does some things that are interesting, right? He drinks in front of people. And you may pass that by. You may think, what's the big deal? In the ancient world, it was very rare that a king would eat or drink in front of his subjects. In fact, I don't know if you know this, Adolf Hitler refused to be filmed eating or drinking in front of, and he'd never let people see him eat or drink. Because the assumption was, and still, unfortunately, with guys like Hitler, is commoners, humans have to eat, not gods, not kings. So you don't do that. So when Belshazzar shows up and he's not just having a big party, but he's drinking and getting drunk, what he is doing is he's saying, not only are things okay, but they're better than okay. Would I be behaving like this? Look how, look how comfortable I am with you. There's nothing wrong. Everything is okay. He's trying to present something. And this is why what's on the screen behind me is important, because pride is why he throws this party. Because pride takes many forms, but two of them are outward and inward. Outward is obvious. We all know outward proud people. You see them and you can spot them a mile away because they're arrogant, they're snobbish, they're vain, they're bombastic, and that's pride, right? They're trying to show off something, but it's a Potemkin village. Proud people are trying to bluster so that you don't realize how hollow they are behind. The last thing they want is for you to peek in the window and see what's behind it. But there's also an inward pride, which so many of us have, that doesn't get as much airplay because it's more subtle. Because proud people can look very humble, but inward pride, which is so... Such, a, such an issue with us. It appears as an inordinate concern with what other people think. So, I care so much about what you think. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be what I think you want me to be because you'll love me if you think I'm humble. So let me pretend like I'm humble. You'll love me if you think I'm generous. So let me pretend like I'm generous. And so, Belshazzar throws this party. He's trying to make you think the world, the nation think that he is okay, that he's a good leader because pride feeds off an audience. He needs the good opinion of the people around him. He must have it. We all must have it. But of course, pride, before it can be dealt with and killed, it has to be exposed. And so God shows up and he writes on the wall, mene, the first word, which means numbered. And it's very simple. He says, I've seen through the window, Belshazzar. 
Your days are numbered. All this good opinion you've been looking for with this party to appease the lords, your wives, the concubines, it's all going to be gone because your pride says that you need the opinion of other people when all you need is my opinion, God is saying. That's all you needed. And I'm going to expose it by writing on the wall. Look at what he does, right? He not just writes it on a wall. He does it in the middle of a party and next to a lampstand so nobody can miss it. He's making very clear, he's exposing this Potemkin village. It's a lie, Belshazzar. So he exposes this idea that, our, his, that Belshazzar needs an audience and says, you don't, you need me. So the first aspect of pride is revealed. It needs an audience. The second one is it needs a rival. Psychologists and pastors alike rue the idea of how we raise our children. And I'm guilty of it too. We raise our kids unintentionally, just individuals, us as parents, but also as a culture, based on comparison. The psychologists call it downward social comparison. But what it means is we basically try to make you better people by, by teasing and poking at your pride to make you a proud person. If you spill water or if you slap somebody when you shouldn't when you're a child, we say, you know better. Do you know what that means? You should do better than you are. You're underachieving. You should be doing better than you should, which is an appeal to pride. And we do this all the time. You know better. I didn't raise you that way. And then we go to school and we say, do well in school, but there's only so many A's we can give out, so it's a competition. I compare you to your two peers. You're going to go to college, I'm going to compare your transcripts. You're going to get a job, I'm going to compare you to other candidates. You want a spouse, women are going to compare us men to each other. We're not as picky as men. I'm just... That's not a very popular statement. <laughs> but... but you see, it's a constant comparison. The whole world is built on this idea of comparison and rivalry. C.S. Lewis, as always, says it much clearer and better. He says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. So, you see, we're so, con we're so insecure that we need, we can't admit it. You see, if I'm a bad dad, if I'm feeling like I've been a bad dad for a week or a day or whatever, and I haven't given my kids enough attention or I've lost my temper or whatever it is, then I don't want to admit it to myself. Admitting that I am not a good father is too deep, too dark, and too humbling. So I immediately set up a Potemkin village and I say, I've stumbled, but I'm not as bad as so-and-so because at least I'm not beating my kids, or whatever. You know, we think of something like that. If you don't do well in school, then you say, listen, I'm not great at school, but I'm street smart. See? If, if, you're, if you're, as a, a mother, if you're concerned about how much time you're spending, you know, sometimes there's this concern that if I work as a mom, then my kids aren't going to get enough attention. There could be a lot of stigma and guilt. And it's easy to say something and say, I know I haven't spent enough time in educating and helping my kids but I've had to work. I haven't had the luxury of that stay-at-home mom who has a husband who can make enough money. And you see, all these things have an element of truth in them. You might not be the worst dad. You might be very street smart. You may be honoring your family by working. But we hate to admit the possibility that we may not be, not that we might not, the truth that we know we're not the people we should be. And so we create lies in our lives and we compare. And that's what we do very well. I might be bad, but I'm not as bad as so-and-so. And we do this to control ourselves. 
we, are, we sense deeply that we are frothy and weightless, so we try to put weight on ourselves. We try to build ourselves up in some way. And Belshazzar does this in a classic way. He takes these vessels that they, they got from Israel, and they become the rivals. See, he needs an enemy to look like he's tougher. Doesn't, don't all politicians do that? There's always an enemy, right? Always an enemy that we gather around. And Belshazzar says, I know, I'm feeling like I'm going to be the guy known as the last king of Babylon. I'm the one who's going to drive this empire into the ground. So what does he do? He blusters and then he says, bring out these vessels that, I, that we took from the, the temple in, in Israel, in Jerusalem. And there's this wonderful poem by Lord Byron about this whole scene. And here's what Byron says about it. The king was on his throne. The satraps thronged the hall. A thousand bright lamps shone o'er that high festival. A thousand cups of gold in Judah deemed divine. Jehovah's vessels hold the godless heathen's wine. And what Byron is saying is what Belshazzar is feeling. He's saying, look, remember, he feels insecure. He knows this kingdom is slipping from his grasp. And what does he say? He says, listen, I know it's slipping, but remember that God who brought Egypt to its knees in the plagues? Remember that people who, like locusts, devoured Palestine and took over empire after empire until they claimed their land? Not only did we, do I defeat them as Babylonian king, but I take their sacred vessels of this great God and I use them for my amusement. And he immediately sets up a rival. You think I'm down, but I can't be that bad. Look what, we've, look what I've done. I've dominated this once great people, this God who brought Egypt to its knees at the height of its power. I drink from his... It's a trifle to me. And he, bring, he sets up a rival for himself. But then into his pride and his, this another Potemkin village comes a second word, tekel. He has thought himself to be heavy and weighty. And God says, I have weighed you. You're light. You're frothy. You're air. You're vapor. Vanity. The word vanity in Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, it means air, airy, vapor. And this is what he's saying. You've tried to make yourself heavy by heaping on these accomplishments but your light, I've peeked behind the window. There's nothing there, Belshazzar. And it's actually quite incredible what he's done. Belshazzar is a trust fund baby. Belshazzar takes these, these implements and he drinks them like he's the king. But you notice what the, what the writer says. Belshazzar didn't win them. Nebuchadnezzar did. Belshazzar's done nothing with his life. He didn't even become king on his own power. His dad had the coup. Belshazzar was handed it to him. He's a trust fund baby who's inherited everything, and God says you should have been humble, knowing that you were given all this with doing nothing for it, you lazy bugger. You've done nothing for it, and now you're thinking you're heavy? Glory, kabod in Hebrew means heaviness, the weight of glory. He has no kabod, no glory. He's been weighed and found wanting. There's nothing there at all. So once again, he's exposed the Potemkin village, and this is the great tragedy and sadness and humiliation of pride. It does the opposite of what it's trying to do. Pride tries to convince you and everybody else that you are heavy, but all it does is reveal you're actually not. How many of us have seen people who are very outwardly proud, and you just look at them and say, they're covering up for something. They don't feel, there's no way they're that confident. And this is what has been revealed again. Another Potemkin village has been revealed. So there's an audience, a rival, but then there's a lie, a great lie 
See, pride is rooted on a lie, and it's actually very closely linked to idolatry. Because pride says, you're feeling insecure, but you can make yourself secure again. The idol is the thing you get to make yourself feel secure, right? So you feel insecure, and you say, I can't, I can make myself better, I'm good, I'm strong enough, this is what my parents have been telling me. I'm smarter than my brother or whatever, so surely I can do this myself. And then to make yourself feel secure, you latch on to something that you think will make you feel secure, and that's the idol, whatever it is that you grab onto. And think about a few different ways. If you feel like a failure in life, especially amongst men, one way to try to counteract that is you latch onto the idol of sexual conquest. I am going to, to have as many notches in the bedpost as I can because that will make me feel like a guy. I've accomplished something. I'm not a loser. I'm not a failure. Um, other one might be you feel like, again, a, a guilty bad parent. Well, the idol is comparison. Let me compare myself to somebody else. You feel like you're not the brightest person. You feel like you struggle at school. You feel like you're not as educated as other people. Here's a simple way to combat that, and I'm very good at this myself. Make yourself smarter than anybody else in the room. And you do it not by being smarter, but by looking smarter. Don't read the books, but own them. Right? Don't read the books, but memorize just the cleverest little passage you have to read so you can use it at a cocktail party and look smart. See, it's very simple. Um, there are so many ways. Your kids, you feel like you're not, your kids aren't measuring up, your kids aren't uh, a great reflection of your parenting. It's very easy. Don't actually try to nurture them. Instead, just make them dress really well and memorize a few scripture passages. Right? That's the idol. Because there's a lie that is inherent in all of this. And the lie makes us feel good about ourselves. But if anything comes and tries to look behind that, Behind that facade, you will fight it. I've, I've, I'm, I'm very bad at this, so don't do as your pastor says. But I struggle, because I'm the guy who has plenty of pride, plenty of pride. But when I hear somebody say, and I know they, they say, I've read this book, and I'm thinking, I know you haven't read that book. I'm the one who will call them out on it, and my wife will elbow me, right? <laughs> So when somebody says, I read this book, I then will make a comment about the book that I know to be a lie. And when they agree with it, I say, aha, you have not read the book. You know, I'm that <laughs> That's my own pride. Because I'm like, how dare you claim falsely what I have of my own ability? You know, it's so dumb, but it's what I do. Um, and <laughs> I don't even know where I was going with that. But the lie, you see, but anything that threatens to peek behind it. And you see, people like me, are always going to be racked with anxiety because we work really hard to know everything. Everything. So when a question comes that I don't know the answer to, your pastors, I get anxious. For some reason, there's still a part in me, knowing that I am saved and Christ is sufficient, that still worries that if I don't know every answer to every biblical question, I'm not the guy I should be. This is just us. There's a lie that pride tells you, and we believe it entirely. But again, into this lie comes the third word, which is Perez or Parson, depends on the translation. And the word means divided and Persian. It can be a play on the word Persian. And the idea is Belshazzar has been believing this lie of security. And the lie is found, to, found again, not just here, but also in the book, again, Herodotus, this ancient Greek historian, writes about this, this story. And he, he clearly exaggerates. But he says that Babylon was surrounded by a wall that was 90 kilometers long. It's pretty long. 
He says it was 300 feet high. It's probably not. <laughs> almost, almost, no, not probably. It wasn't. And he says it was 24 meters, so 90 feet thick. Now, these are exaggerations, but we do know it was an incredibly well-fortified city. And not just well-fortified, but the Euphrates River ran right through the middle of the city, which means you're never going to be able to siege this city because it's got walls, it has farms within it, it has fresh water. How are you going to starve them out? So he would have been feeling very secure against a siege. Macbeth would say, I will laugh a siege to scorn. So he's feeling quite proud, but God comes and says, it's a lie. I will divide your kingdom and I'll give it to the Persians, these other people. Because you see, here's, if you know your history, here's the ironic part. The whole time Belshazzar is partying and trying to create a Potemkin village for himself, outside the walls is Cyrus, this young, very industrious Persian, who while there's drinking and whoring and drugs and everything going on in the city, he is outside diverting the entire Euphrates River off its course to try to get inside to Babylon. And that contrast smacks every person who reads the history in their face and they realize, listen, in the world of tit for tat, Cyrus deserves Babylon. He seems to want it. And the lie is again exposed. Your walls, your parties, the good opinion of people, everything your ancestors have bought for you, Belshazzar, are not going to be enough. I've divided it. I've given it to the Persians. It's over. And then, lastly, we come to the remedy. And you see, here's the great... Here's where, here's where the crux comes. Pride cannot simply be exposed. You can't defeat and kill pride by simply drawing attention to it and saying, aha, he's proud. And we know this because, again, history tells us what happened to Belshazzar. After the party ends, he goes into his bed and he is killed in his bed. He's assassinated while he's sleeping. Now, he's in bed. After the party, there's no audience he has to appease there's no uh, people he has to make himself look better in front of. There's no need to have a rival. There's no need to pretend. He's in his bed alone in the darkness. And he still refuses to repent. He still won't. Why? Because exposing the pride is not enough. Telling a drug addict they're addicted to drugs is not a surprise to the drug addict. It's not enough to end it. Telling the guy who's addicted to pornography he's got a problem is not enough. He's going to justify it. He's not... It's not enough to expose and shed light on something. Something greater must happen to break the pride or whatever sin it is. And what happens? Well, the best way I think to understand it, how to kill it, is by telling a story again. And then we're going to close after the story. But it's going to take a second for me to explain it. It's a story by the Brothers Grimm. Now we can put the picture up. The Brothers Grimm, you all know them. They wrote these wonderful moral fairy tales. Uh, and there's one that's not as well known. It's called King Thrushbeard. Now, here is what the story is about, and then you'll see why it's so relevant to this topic. Once upon a time, there's a king. Uh, don't, put, don't put anything up yet. Yeah, just the picture. Can't spoil it here, unless you've read it. I mean, how many people read this particular story? So, King Thrushbeard, he's a king, and he, is, um, he has his daughter, who's very proud, very proud-hearted woman, and she refuses to marry anybody. Every time a suitor comes, she says, nope, uh, no good, they're not good. So the father decides, you know what, I'm going to have a party at the palace. And I'm going to invite all the great bachelors of the land, kings, princes, wealthy people, everybody I can find are going to come. And I'm going to parade them before my daughter one by one. And she's going to find a husband. So 
One by one they come, and she says, too tall, too short, too fat, too skinny, too dark, too light. She just picks everybody apart. And her worst scorn is left for a man who she calls King Thrushbeard, who's a king of, a, of somewhere outside, this, his, outside her father's kingdom. And he's got a pointy chin and a beard, so she says he looks like a thrush, like a, a bird. She mocks him, and he leaves sad. The father is so mad, so mad, and he says, that's it, I've had enough of you. I'm going to marry you to literally the next beggar who comes to the, the palace. I don't care who it is. A few days later, a beggar shows up at the palace, and he's asking for money, and the king says, I've got something maybe better, maybe worse than money for you. I have this daughter. <laughs> and he marries the beggar and his daughter. And then he sends them out and says, thank you, you're now married, you're his problem. So now she leaves with this beggar, and they're walking um, to his hovel that he lives in, his hut. And as they're going to the hut, she sees a big, beautiful field on the side. And she says, whose field is that? And he says, that belongs to somebody uh, named so-and-so who you call King Thrushbeard. And she's like, oh, if I had known, if I had known he was wealthy, I, maybe I would have been nicer to him. You know, she's feeling very sorry for herself. They then get to the hut, and the man says, listen, um, I can't afford to keep you at home, so you have to work. But you can't cook, so I can't make you a maid. You're kind of useless. You're a princess. You can't do anything, really. Your hands are too delicate to be a basket weaver. So maybe, because you're pretty, I can make you a marketer. You will sell my earthenware pots at the market. That's what you can do. So she goes to the market, and she sells these pots. She sets them up, and she sells them. And she does a pretty good job. But one day, she sets up the pots at the corner of the market. And while she is there, a wild driving and riding, horse riding hussar comes and tramples the pots and breaks them. She's feeling pretty terrible. She tells her beggar husband, I'm sorry, the pots are all broken. He is like, oh my goodness, you, you can't even sell a pot. Like, everybody knows you don't sell pots on the corner of a market. I guess that was the thing. Um, <laughs> I didn't. I would have done the same. So he says, well, listen, I don't know what we're going to do, but I have one more hope. There's this king in the area, and he needs a maid. So he sends her just to be a, he, she says, he says, can you maybe manage just hand people food? Can you do that? So he sends her and she goes. And one day she's there and she's working and there's a big masquerade ball. And she has stuffed her pockets full of food to bring home because they're, they're poor. But she's sitting and she's watching all those lords and ladies sing and dance and having a great time. And she's lamenting and she's dreaming and daydreaming about what she could have had. And in that moment, somebody comes and grabs her by the arm and starts dancing with her, whirling her around the dance floor. And she is embarrassed because she's dressed like a maid. She's also worried the food's going to spill out of her pockets. And that's exactly what happens. The food spills out of her pockets, and she's humiliated. And here is how the story ends. When the people saw this, everyone laughed and ridiculed her. She was so ashamed that she would rather have been a thousand fathoms beneath the ground she jumped out of the door and wanted to run away, but a man overtook her on the stairs and brought her back. And when she looked at him, it was King Thrushbeard again. He said to her kindly, don't be afraid. I, am the, I and the beggar who has been living with you in that miserable hut are one and the same. For the love of you, I disguised myself. And I was also the rider who broke your pottery to pieces. All this was done to humble your proud spirit and to punish you for the arrogance with which you ridiculed me. Then she cried bitterly and said, I am terribly wrong, and I am not worthy to be your wife. But he said, be comforted. The evil days are past. Now we will celebrate our wedding. 
Then the maids in waiting came and dressed her in, her most, in the most splendid clothing, and her father and his whole court came and wished her happiness in the marriage with King Thrushbeard, and their true happiness began only now. Thrushbeard understood what exactly is happening in Daniel 5, that you cannot kill pride by force. It can only be melted by grace. The only thing that would cause Belshazzar to, to turn around as if he had seen what God was doing for him, how God had given him the example of Nebuchadnezzar who repented, how God had um, written on the wall and broke in in such a graphic way to his life to say, wake up, Belshazzar. You may not save the kingdom, but you can save your soul. He does it by a lamp to make sure he can read it. He, he even gets the queen who remembers Daniel, and the queen shows up and says, I remember this Daniel who can interpret it. He didn't see that as being grace. He doesn't see Daniel as being an, uh, an outstretched hand of grace to him. And he doesn't see any of it. But all of it was being done, as Thrushbeard says, to humble your proud spirit. And today, much like Belshazzar, you and I deserve the darkness. You and I deserve what we get in this world and the next if we continue in our pride. But God comes. He came disguised as a man. This is what Christmas is. Disguised as a man, he was trampled like the pottery. He was mocked. He was embarrassed. He took it all for our sake. So that if you accept him, then you get to hear the words Thrushbeard said over the princess. But God will speak them over you. Be comforted. The evil days are past. Now we will celebrate our wedding. Nothing will change it. Listen, we're all proud. I assure you, trying harder won't do it because you know what will happen? You'll end one part of pride, but you'll become very proud at having done that. It won't work. The only thing that smashes pride to pieces is grace. The only thing. And until you accept it, you're going to be on a merry-go-round of pride. Trust me, as a man who's done it many years and continues to struggle with it. Grace alone. Let us do that. Let's submit this truth that God did this for our sake so we can hear those words. Be comforted. The evil days are gone. Now we will celebrate our wedding. Let's pray.